0: Hello, and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in, the second of the new political year. It is really September, the start of another political year, although I think the continuity with the end of the last one is pretty marked. Before I get going, a couple of announcements. I'm going to be doing a live show, virus permitting, socially distanced audience, at King's Place, reopening the main hall at King's Place in North London, live on Friday the September the 18th. And tickets, uh, there are still some tickets available on the King's Place website, so we can all get together like we used to do in the olden days, and it'll be fun but also that show will be streamed so if you can't get to it because you live in New York or that's the only excuse for not coming live you can watch the streamed version there are tickets for that also on the King's Place website so streamed and in that concert hall it's like kind of breaking into a place that you're told you're never allowed to go to that's on the 18th uh, of this month September the 18th and then on the 19th the following day on the Saturday I'm at the great rope tackle art centre in Shoreham it's a lovely place I've been there many times before and so hopefully uh, some of you on that kind of south coast Brighton everywhere Bournemouth all come to the Rope Tackle and tickets are available on their website and then the following Saturday what dates that the 26th of September for the first time out at the Greenwich Theatre I'm always getting tweets saying can you come to south london you know the river being in the way and things so um, i'm really looking forward it's a lovely theatre the greenwich theatre and tickets are available on their website so virus permitting live shows three in that week and there are a few tickets left at each of those venues i think as i speak so hopefully see you if not please join the live stream from king's place uh, because there are ways in which you can engage from that safe virtual distance talking of which i've been really thrilled with um, what an innovation you know, as if no one else has ever thought of this before uh, for those of you who didn't join me last week i gave an email address for those listening to the podcast to raise points to ask questions so a bit like the live streaming Uh, Events from King's Place during the height of lockdown. There's a real kind of engagement and conversation like we have in the theatre for rock and roll politics and so I gave out an email for those of you who want to to um, ask questions and raise points and loads of you have done and so at the end of this podcast we're going to reflect on some of those questions. I can't read out too many but I promise you over time I'm going to get through them all so for those of you who have emailed and don't get a question this time I think what I might do is you know what they call them a bonus podcast which just goes through some of the questions at some point but each week there will be a q a section and for those of you who um, missed all this last week the email address but i mean i don't know it off by heart hold on a second i'm gonna have to um uh, look it up what is this email address oh yeah here it is it's uh steve rick 14 the number 14 at icloud.com so i'll do, read out one more time steve rick 14 at icloud.com and as i said for those of you last week who listened to the podcast jogging or doing press-ups you won't have a pen with you to make a note of the email address it's at four minutes 28 seconds ish into the podcast so when you finished your Run, uh, which has been inspired by the words of this podcast, like listening to the Rolling Stones or the Libertines, it gets you going faster. That's where you can get the email address and do get in touch about anything, uh, well, within reason. And we will reflect on some of those questions in the next podcast. But at the end of this one, some of those uh, who have already emailed, we're going to have a discussion and a conversation if it's okay with you and I kind of do I don't know why I feel apologetic about this because none of us should be I'm going to go back to the olden days and talk a bit about Brexit the fact that I'm almost apologetic about it shows how in a way a terrible conjuring trick has been performed by this Brexiteer government that to even discuss it appears to be blasphemous as if you are challenging a consensus that has surfaced that the topic is taboo it's been done it's over get Brexit it's over Uh, when of course it hasn't been done and we are reaching a pivotal moment and there's considerable danger. There's no doubt at all that the government with its uh, huge majority from that bizarre dark december election has the space to do more or less what it likes in relation to brexit certainly in january it had the space to do anything it liked in relation to brexit and everything else it was wholly commanding a majority of mps they're largely dependent on the back of johnson and his very personal campaign in december this gives a new government a huge amount of political space now because of what has happened since and the light shone on the nature of johnson's extreme limitations as a leader the bizarre way number 10 conducts itself with johnson's zany but hugely powerful advisor dominic cummings The space has narrowed a bit but there is no doubt that while for example in terms of things like the budget this autumn and tax rises the space is quite narrow. Conservative chancellors find it very difficult to find any tax rises acceptable to their own backbenchers and uh, Rishi Sunak is finding that at the moment a leak to the Sunday Times about some of the things the Treasury is contemplating in terms of tax rises triggered uproar both in public and in private amongst Conservative MPs help what are we doing you can't do that you can't do this you can't do that and that has been the fate of Tory chancellors since they got elected in 2010 2010 remember this is the fourth term of a conservative government because this government is so bizarre it feels like a new government it's the fourth term but one common factor in each of the terms has been the struggle to find acceptable tax rises Uh, George Osborne with his silly tax on Cornish pasties had to reverse that. Philip Hammond found right in the Theresa May honeymoon period uh, that he had to almost immediately reverse plans to raise the national insurance contributions on the self-employed. And now Sunak finds himself in the same kind of position fuel tax uh, to go up the sun newspaper starts an immediate campaign against it Tory MPs twitch and number 10 have to rule it out that's happened already and the budget is weeks perhaps longer than that away so on tax limited room to breathe on Brexit they have more space for several reasons one this parliamentary party is a Brexit party. Each candidate had to sign up to Johnson's proposition on Brexit, albeit vague in December of last year, but they all signed up to some form of Brexit. So it's not like the previous parliamentary party, where there were people like Philip Hammond, David Gork, all these dangerous insurrectionaries, who dared to raise issues about the implications of certain forms of Brexit. By the way, they were not by then arguing for Remain. They were just arguing against the catastrophic consequences of, for example, a no-deal Brexit. Well, they were all purged in Johnson's early phase as a Prime Minister. And now you have a Brexit Tory parliamentary party. And because Labour got into so much difficulty over Brexit. Starmer has not turned, to use the cliche w- when we talk about him, his forensic gaze on Brexit at all. He is aware that he could walk into several traps in doing so at this point. And by the way, for now, but not for much longer, I think he's made the right call. He's not a leader of the opposition in a hung parliament where he can, through the numbers in parliament, partially determine the course of events on brexit Uh, johnson has this majority and starmer can speak words but cannot turn that into a majority against johnson and cummings so by speaking all he can do is utter words words that might at this point before the realities of a no deal or an ultra hard Brexit hit home, might alienate further all those Labour voters who turn to the Tories largely because of Brexit and their support for Brexit. And Starmer, who I think is proving to be quite a sharp reader of the rhythms of opposition politics, and they are really hard. And, and, By the way, quite a sharp reader. The qualification is it's very early days and he's got a long, long road to travel. Uh, But he, I think, is right in saying that if he raised questions or had raised questions so far, the time is coming when he damn well needs to, but not necessarily up until now. Uh, The idea that Johnson, there Starmer says this, maybe we better do it. Of course, that wouldn't happen. Johnson would just go into the chamber, as he does anyway. Islington remain. And nor would those former Labour voters say, oh, have you heard Keir Starmer said we got it all wrong on Brexit, we'll vote Labour now. Uh, That moment has not come. The implications of what the government is doing in a way need to seep through to the voters first and then for Starmer to wade in. There is a parallel for this it's not by any means precise but for example in the build-up to the crash out of the exchange rate mechanism in 1992 under the John Major government and it happened in September Major had won an historic election victory in April of that year an amazing personal triumph to have won a fourth term not as bigger majority by any means as Johnson but he won it when many expected him to lose it and he was under huge pressure in the build-up to September 1992 to do something about Britain's position in the exchange rate mechanism um, because it looked as if it was unsustainable And the then Shadow Chancellor, Gordon Brown, was under huge pressure to condemn what Major was doing and to call for action. But Brown didn't do it. He kept quiet and let the government move towards its terrible catastrophe in September 1992, when the pound fell out of the exchange rate mechanism and the Tories were never ahead in the polls again, from September of 92 to the 97 election and Labour wasn't blamed for not opposing what Major had been doing. Now the parallels aren't precise but it seems to me that at the moment the government is walking towards a Brexit of calamitous chaos. Certainly that will be the case if there's no deal but may well be the case with a flimsy deal, though that would be much better for the British economy because there would be a basis on which more sane people could work with it in the future. But at this point, fully understandably, those who support Brexit have not, in most cases, reached any sense of what the consequences might be. We're in effect still in the European Union union getting the benefits without the hits that might come and what is really worrying is there was a very well-informed piece by the spectator political editor james forsyth in the times last uh, friday i don't know if many of you read it but it was clearly briefed by dominic cummings or somebody close to dominic cummings and the argument was this that a no deal was increasingly likely and desirable because of this thorny issue of state aid and the constraints, which I'll come on to in a minute because the constraints actually actually limited, this thorny issue of state aid. And because this government might wish to intervene and subsidise private companies in uh, developing new technology they need to pull out of any state aid constraints that the European Union might impose and on that basis a no deal is desirable but perhaps once we've pulled out with no deal negotiations over a Canada style free trade deal could reconvene next year at some point. You kind of don't know where to start with this fantasy and I speak as somebody who unlike the treasury unlike tony blair unlike much of the conservative party can see the case for state aid it's absurd that governments should not be allowed to intervene in industrial policy it happens very effectively in japan but here's the twist it happens very effectively within the european union as well look at what happened during COVID 19 the level of state aid went to mind-boggling levels, not only in the UK but across the European Union. So it would be crazy to opt for a no deal on the basis of what the government might want to do at some unspecified point in the future on state aid for some vaguely defined sci-fi technological project in um, that Dominic Cummings fantasises about late at night. On that basis, the farming sector could be wrecked, manufacturing could be wrecked, tariffs could be imposed from January the 1st, which will lead to very high increases in prices on foods and many other goods. Those lorry parks will be scattered across England. They're already building them, uh, expediting planning laws to do it. This is a kind of, we're entering a kind of mad, world here and the interesting dimension to this is not so much what Starmer will do because he is powerless for the time being but what the cabinet will do because it's also reported it was reported by the hugely well-informed James Forsyth but others too and I've had conversations with such people that quite a lot of the cabinet have reached an entirely different conclusion to the Cummings fantasy. And that is, especially after the impact of Covid, a deal is uh, important, a Brexit deal. Now, you know, just to say this should, should not sound kind of bonkers. Remember what Cummings wants is for Britain to withdraw from all its arrangements with by far its biggest market. So he at some point can intervene and spend some money on some technological project with a private company who might or might not need state aid at that point. Now will this cabinet, whichever members we are talking about, dare to say that it is essential that Britain gets a deal by the end of the year? I suspect not. This is a cabinet wholly dependent on the patronage of number 10 johnson and cummings and that includes incidentally rishi sunak who anyway is a lifelong brexiteer the treasury is no fan of state aid and i suspect sunak would not want to go to the wall over state aid he's not a big interventionist as we can see from his rush to end the furlough payments compared with, say, the normally fiscal, fiscally conservative Germany, which is extending the furlough uh, for quite some time to come. But I think Sunak, who's had this soaring rise during the epidemic, is also very conscious that he is absolutely the product of Cummings. Cummings told Johnson to sack the previous Chancellor, Sajib Javid, and to bring in Sunak. Without Cummings, Sunak would not be Chancellor now. And while Cummings is so omnipotent and intimidating, and if he tells Johnson to sack someone, Johnson sacks them, Sunak too is uh, not in a position or doesn't feel i suspect he's in a position to be a mighty dissenter over something as fundamental as brexit i hope i'm wrong and that if johnson without paying much detail with much attention to the detail heads towards no deal under the instruction of cummings who he tends to follow as a kind of theological mission if that happens I hope Sunak resists. I hope others do. But I doubt it. Even those in that cabinet who just got in there who were Remainers, by the way, that includes uh, Liz Truss, who's now become an absolute um, ideological Brexiteer. How these people switch. But even those Remainers who probably still believe no deal will be a calamity. I suspect, will nod silently as Johnson moves towards that particular goal. If he does, we don't know yet. Uh, We'll know pretty soon. Time's running out in this bonkers time limit that uh, Johnson and Cummings has imposed on itself. An act of machismo uh, which does give Starmer a good line at some point, which is to say we would prefer a good deal than a quick deal, which wrecks the economy. But anyway, with time running out, we'll soon know what uh, Johnson does. What if they go for a no deal? Well, the economic consequences, as I've already suggested, will be calamitous. I suspect politically this is what will happen. At first, they'll get a big increase in support in the polls the newspapers will say global britain takes on europe global britain stands proud and alone there will be all kinds of echoes to the uh, second world war and it will be nauseating false but will have an impact on parts of the electorate who respond to this kind of thing and it's it always works. Uh, the, the the only moment where Theresa May got a kind of hit in the polls was when she affected a kind of anger with the European Union after one uh, when she felt she had been unfairly hijacked at a, a a meeting of the EU leaders, and she came back and kind of complained. so Britain will fight this, and and the papers went wild with excitement for about five minutes. And that will be, I suspect, the immediate impact, a big Tory lead on the back of overexcited Eurosceptic uh, newspapers. But it will not last, because even though uh, Johnson will blame Europe and all the rest of it, and blame Covid, the consequences will be so precise and so obviously, I think, unrelated to covid maybe some will think oh this is all to do with the virus that uh, there are these lorries going back miles and i can't get tomatoes for more than about five quid a tomato and stuff uh, maybe they'll blame covid but i think there will be a connection and at first no doubt they'll blame europe but after a bit they may wonder about that and so it is a political risk for johnson the economic thing is it's stupid to talk about a risk. It will be terrible. But uh, the the politics, I think, will be more longer term. So anyway, this is all to come. And the fact that we, you know, as, as I said at the beginning, God, I'm, I'm so sorry I'm going to talk about Brexit. But when you think about it, a year ago, there was this huge sense of, Anything must be done to avoid no deal. Do you remember that hung parliament passed a bill to make it illegal for Johnson to just pull out without a deal on October the 31st, as he and Cummings were sort of planning to do? God, it's by the way, what, a, a year you know, last year, at this time, there was talk possibly of Ken Clark being prime minister of a temporary coalition government, of perhaps Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister of a coalition government, and they all blew it. Joe Swinson, the leader of the Liberals, do you remember? She's got a lot to answer for. Nicola Sturgeon, she had good reason to want that December election. But others rush towards it and rush towards their doom. Another Shakespearean sequence in British politics. Anyway, I think there will be quite a lot of Brexit talk, I'm afraid, on this podcast. There I go again apologising, afraid. This is kind of huge politics which will affect the British economy and its place in the world for years and years to come anyway uh, some reflections there as I say more to come in weeks to come but now this is the new section of the podcast uh, some of your questions and they were brilliant all of them and I will get through them all over time but uh, let's let's stick with about four today if that's okay with all of you uh, there was one from uh, Chris Park who raises an interesting point about the BBC. And he has his own comments about the BBC and the complexity of balance and impartiality. And he notes that the new director general seems to be doubling down on viewing every subject as one that's polarised between left versus right. His comments, you know, on the left wing comedians etc which i agree with by the way The i uh, there was this headline about arrogant left-wing comedians arrogance is not an issue if you're a left-wing comedian you've been on the losing side of every uh, you know event for at least 10 years if not more it's very interesting the right tend to win everything and yet feel besieged but that's another issue that's not to do with the bbc He was saying, you know, what about, what should the BBC's kind of mission be now? Chris was raising this. And I've got no doubt, although I suspect it won't happen, that, as I think Chris refers to in his email to me, that the period where the BBC had a a clearly defined mission in its central area of news and current affairs, which is what I know about, was the John Burt era when it had that what he called a mission to explain. John Burt put up a really good phrase in the late, uh, no, I think it was the mid-70s, that he did have a bias, or, or the media, the broadcasting media did have a bias, and it was a bias against understanding. And Burt came into the BBC and said, look, We can't express our own views, but we can shed light by putting events into context, weighing up the significance of events, and so on. And he was instinctively against the kind of patronising populism that you can get these days. You know, oh, we must go out and do a vox pop. Uh, out of London to show that we reflect the people's views. It's an act of dishonesty, Vox Pops, because they have to be balanced. So even if someone goes to an area and finds 25 Brexiteers, it would be balanced. They'd go and find a remainer somewhere. And so it's a distortion. And anyway, it doesn't tell you anything because you don't know the background of the people who become a voice for 10 seconds on a news bulletin. So all of that is deeply patronising. So a mission to explain uh, becomes a really important mission. And I suspect even Cummings and Johnson would respond to that if it was done with a weightiness and seriousness, combined with something that Davy did say which is encouraging that the BBC is over bureaucratic and too much time is spent on internal processes and I can't tell you how true that observation is it's never knowingly under managed in any area and that does have an impact on the output very negative one which is that the kind of prevalent emotion is fear because someone thinks about what a manager above them might be thinking on a certain issue and that manager thinks about what the manager above them is thinking on a certain issue there's a kind of fearfulness around the place that uh, determines judgments about what should be on what shouldn't be on who should be on who shouldn't be on Uh, maybe if we put um, eight items in a short program that means we'll have covered everything so the person above me and the person above them cannot complain that we didn't cover something and therefore everything gets covered only very superficially all these things have consequences and so I think uh, Tim Davey is right about that he's already announced a much smaller executive board and that's a good thing but his pandering right away to the kind of uh, right-wing nationalism about land of hope and glory and these left-wing comedians these are all banal cliches Uh, there is a bigger issue a lot of these comedians aren't remotely funny it would be all right if you're a left-wing comedian hilarious there are a few but not many But it's a kind of complete red herring. But the mission to explain, I think, reviving that as a purpose would be a good thing. And that means giving items space to breathe. If you have a good interviewee, why not let them have 20 minutes? And, you know, Andrew Marr does that on his programme, but the Today programme rarely does. And if you have a good discussion at the end of the Today programme, let it run a bit. You know, I I did the New Statesman diary this week and I was reminded as I was writing it um, of the, I was on once during the financial crash in 2008 and on with Anne McElvoy uh, from The Economist and it went like this. John Humphreys said, it's now three minutes to nine. Has the financial crash transformed British politics and perhaps democratic politics across the Western world. Joining me is the independent Steve Richards and the and Anne Kelvoy from The Economist. Anne, is British politics changed forever? And she spoke quite concisely. And then I looked at the clock and noticed it was one minute to nine. Steve, what do you think? And I began with a flourish. Uh, the 2008 crash has overturned All the orthodoxies and assumptions that um, many have carried with them since at least 1979. And then John Humphrey said, "Uh, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, We've run out of time. Our editors today were Bert Thung and Joanna Thung. Uh, Goodbye. That was it. You know, a kind of topic, brilliant topic for them to have chosen. And it lasted about a second. So let things breathe a bit. Don't be frightened of letting things breathe. Anyway, good, good themes, Chris, and, and I'll, I'll return to them and do get in touch uh, if you've got some more thoughts. Question from uh, Louise Davis-Jones. Louise makes the point about the lack of... Uh, hold on a 2nd i we'll just get to it. Uh, Louise says, in, in the podcast I talked about some of the advisors, other than Dominic Cummings do we know... These advisors are. I've often felt that decisions are based on the advice of a naive intern who never accesses political news analyses, has poor general knowledge, and no idea how the world hangs together. I don't know whether you're talking about a naive intern or the Prime Minister, Louise. And she goes on about the mixed messaging and all the other issues that we are navigating. (laughs) <laughs> through as a country with this um bizarre number 10 operation the vote leave operation in government there there are some other advisors but I think Johnson is most in all Louise of Cummings he's not a great listener Johnson he is a self-absorbed figure but he clearly listens to Cummings someone told me that um When Cummings comes into a room, his eyes light up, and he thinks that Cummings, if he follows Cummings, he emerges triumphant. And there's some basis for that. Cummings helped with the 2016 Brexit referendum campaign, although I think if there had been no Cummings and no Johnson, Brexit would still have prevailed. And he then advised him about how to deal with Brexit in the hung parliament. Thanks as much to the opposition as cummings advice johnson prevailed so you know he kind of i think follows cummings more than anybody else and cummings has clearly got free reign and when he didn't sack him over the barnard castle eye test drive that wasn't people said oh what's cummings got on him what hold has he got it's not that he just thinks he's a genius wrongly um And just briefly, I'll try and return to these next week when there's more time because these emails are so brilliant and so detailed. Uh, Michael Freeman asks about the Labour Party. And given that the Labour shadow cabinet has a number of members who are less than well known to the electorate, how can Keir Starmer energise Labour supporters and the electorate that he needs to win over? And who are the key allies of Starmer that he can draw on to provide that star quality to energize and inspire. And Michael makes an interesting point. If Keir Starmer is successful in winning the election, the historical analogy to be drawn may be that of Margaret Thatcher's success in 1979 after the turmoil of the mid-70s. We're certainly living through turmoil now. What hasn't happened yet, though it might, is maybe it is happening actually, you know, in in the mid-70s there was a clear ideological shift away from the state as it had manifested itself then, the sort of corporatism, you know, cabinet ministers deciding the price of bread and milk and negotiating over pay and intervening in various sectors and so on. There was a reaction against that that she leapt on and reinforced with her simplistic stuff about the state just suppresses you, I'm for freedom, who's against freedom? um maybe there is an ideological move in the other direction you see this government uh, putting the case for borrowing and spending to increase the economy boris johnson has claimed to be like roosevelt and has said he's a rooseveltian but in the speech he just re-announced policies that had already been announced before uh, but that ideological shift maybe is in place in terms of energising. Uh, there's nothing he can do about the lack of um, stars in the shadow cabinet, except bringing in people who are better known, Yvette Cooper, Hillary Benn, and so on. He, and maybe he will do at some point. And maybe he needs to do that. But I think the energising will come if if Labour begins to develop a sustained lead in the opinion polls. It's at that point polls are wholly unreliable but they have a huge psychological impact on politics at the time. The media will start to see Labour then as a possible alternative government. The Tories will panic and that in itself I think will be energising if they can get a sustained opinion poll lead and however unreliable opinion polls are finally a couple of great questions from uh, julian hill uh, th- this kind of related to an earlier question i appreciate and understand that there is a lot going on for the government at the moment he points out that's an understatement but he is concerned about uh, attention to detail key point i think you are right julian that detail in a way gets in the way for this number 10 which arrives with a certain verve from campaigning and a set of assumptions certainly in the case of Cummings and the others in relation to Brexit which will not be challenged by detail and evidence and nor is their self-confidence ever undermined. You might have thought that after the trauma of Covid where the early moves of number 10 were proven to be wholly misjudged they might stop and think well hold on if we got all that wrong are all our assumptions correct about Brexit and so on but they move towards Brexit with the self-confidence that they moved early on towards Covid. Ministerial responsibility Junior asks is this still a thing what would a minister have to do to be relieved of their duties these days? I think ministerial responsibility is wholly in the hands of a prime minister nearly all of the time. Johnson could have sacked Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, but chose not to, I think, for two reasons. The main one being Williamson was clearly carrying out instructions from number 10 in his approach to the exam chaos. Cummings and Gove in particular loathed the idea of grade inflation And that they thought would be the consequence of shifting from the off-qual approach to, in effect, predicting exam results. So, if they sacked Williamson, they were fully aware that Williamson might have revealed that it was actually a policy of number 10. And he doesn't want the disruption, and he likes loyalists. And Williamson helped uh, Johnson win the leadership and uh, has been loyal to him and might not be if he's sacked, uh, which you can sort of understand. But ministerial responsibility, the idea of ministers accepting responsibility for policy and therefore resigning, has had fairly limited application over the decades. That doesn't mean to be unfashionable for a moment – that it was wrong for the head of Ofqual and the permanent secretary of the Department of Education to go. I've always thought it wrong that ministers alone should take responsibility when a policy balls up happens, when it is so clear that others who are non-elected have hidden away and yet they too were culpable. So on that I agree with Cummings. There you go. What a way to end. Look, thank you very much. There are loads more of these emails. They're all brilliant. And I'm going to read them all out at some point. But we've kind of gone over today uh, my excitement about these emails. Thank you, all of you who've emailed. And do it again. I gave out the email address, which I still haven't learnt off by heart, at about four minutes in, so I hope um, some of you will do it. Just a reminder, I hope you can join me live at King's Place on September the 18th or at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre on September the 19th or at Greenwich Theatre the following Saturday, September the 26th and it will be streamed at King's Place so you can book a ticket to watch the streaming if you can't make that particular one. And thank you so much for listening today and for your questions. Do keep them coming in and your points. They will be part of this podcast from now on. That's it for Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast this week. See you next week.